0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: Hey guys, Alana Levine here. Together with Sam Mayer, I host How to Be More Chill, a podcast devoted to our beloved musical, Be More Chill. Listen, I just want to tell you that if you're around the weekend of January 25th, go to BroadwayCon. All of the fabulous podcasts that are part of the Broadway Podcast Network are going to be there live, interviewing your favorite stars, and BroadwayCon is just a blast. So get yourself to BroadwayCon, find the Broadway Podcast Network events, and if you love Broadway, you're going to love this weekend.
2: Or pretend to check a text on my phone.
1: Hey everyone, I am Alana.
2: And I'm Sam.
1: And we are two people who had a mutual love for a show called Be More Chill. And we decided that we would like to find a place where we could bring others who love Be More Chill as much as we do all of the behind the scenes with all of its creatives and we thought a really great way to do that would be to have a podcast mm-hmm. and we have called that podcast
2: How to Be More Chill Never
1: hung
0: with a girl like you before I don't know if you know it, but I am sure That for me you are an upgrade Upgrade Upgrade, upgrade. let be each other's Upgrade, upgrade.
2: Welcome to episode five of How to Be More Chill. Today's guest is the book writer of the musical Be More Chill, Joe Trace. What was so
1: incredible about hearing Joe Trace is this remarkable collaboration that happened between him and Joe Iconis, and it really was a match made in heaven. And when you hear him walk us through what the process was from meeting to the show we're seeing on Broadway.
2: Mind's blown. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say this interview of the five that we've done so far, I learned the most things I didn't know before. Mm. The Jurassic Park thing. Shh. shh.
1: No, that's a secret.
2: Let's do this, Joe Trace. All right. Joe Trace. It's recording.
3: Well you said Joe Judge cried. I'll probably the first person to vomit live on up nervous. Oh, Can you
1: imagine? That'd be so horrible. Are you never... nervous? Yeah, yeah. I don't usually get like
3: interviewed like this, so is it very
1: Well, yeah. we don't usually have the honor of interviewing uh librettist/slash book writers <laughs> like Joe Trace. I just want to say that my children both wanted me to let them skip school today because the idea that the person who wrote Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. Uh, Limity Snicket's um,
3: yeah, series, of unfortunate a events. series of
1: unfortunate events, the series, the TV series, and the musical Coming to Broadway, Be More Chill. Literally, they're like, That is that's like a, a personal day. No, I feel
3: that is, <laughs> it, I mean, it's something that I feel. I, 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 if I could go back to my kid self and be like, You will do these things, is I would feel very, very lucky.
1: It's incredible. Um, Sam.
3: Hi.
2: We
1: have Joe Trace here.
2: I'm freaking out. I've been freaking out for every person who's him. come in. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> it's Joe Trace. So,
1: Joe, you, it, the, the cat is out of the bag. As you know, many of your friends from Be More Chill have been in the same chair that you're sitting Amazing. in. And we really wanted to help the fans. um and ourselves, learn sort of all of the behind the scenes leading up to this very glorious time in the Broadway season. So I know that you have written these other things that I just mentioned, but you and Joe Iconis together have created this magical, magical piece of theater. So can you, at the very least, just take us back to the very first time you and Joe Iconis sat together together? having both read the book, um, and started this journey.
3: Yeah. Yeah, in fact, actually, I think that the first time Iconis and I met, you know, our, our, we both had a mutual agent, Scott Chaloff, who's incredible, and uh, set us up on a blind date where he'd given us about the book. And, and you know, I'd known Joe because um, you know, I'd seen Blood, Song, and Love at Ars Nova, and so I knew his music, and, you know, I'd listen to things to ruin. So I was a huge fan of his, and... You know, and, and sort of, you know, you're meeting people who are your peers and, you know, artists who are sort of at the same stage of, you know, trying to make it in New York. And, and so we went to Cornelia Street Cafe, which I just, my husband just today told me that it closed down. Which I was so sad about, and I've actually I've been in the village, and I was actually trying to find it, and now I realize why I couldn't find it again because it's no longer there. I know it's, but it's uh, yeah. So they, I yeah, so I already felt emotional this morning when I was like, this place is now gone. Yes, one more
1: New York City institution. No, but it lives, on,
3: art. it lives on in this podcast. It does. Okay. Yeah, but that was where we sat, we sat and we got we we you know we, we got some coffee and food and and, and talked about ourselves and be more chill and and bonded over our mutual love of Jurassic Park. For, I think for a while, Joe jo had on his website that his like dream was to write the Jurassic Park musical, and so you know, having wow. like, did my little Google research on him, I, you know, it's, I remember that was like, you know, the, it was funny. Actually, I think we actually talked about movies a lot, and you know, one thing that Joe and I found as we uh, have worked together is that we share like not just a love of musical theater, but the the movies that were influential to both of us, and, right? Um, you know, you know, we're around the same age, and so you know, it was the things that we were seeing in theaters and the things we we're discovering on the same time. That really shaped us both in terms of theater, but also in terms of just, you know, stories that were we were discovering and were shaping us.
2: I know a lot about the story of Be More Chill and Joe, the Joe's meeting and, and the evolution, and I did not know the Jurassic Park thing. Yeah, you and know, so, it's funny. It's, it's so I cool. like, would
3: never remember that if it wasn't for this morning, talking to my husband about Cornelia Street Cafe and that, like, the flashbacks that, that those words uh, triggered. Cool.
1: So you're you've all had you both read the book. In fact, when you sat down,
3: yeah. So I so I knew Ned Vizzini's work. I'd read it, his book. It's kind of a funny story, um, which is his second novel. He wrote it after Be More Chill, and it was it's a, a beautiful book if you haven't read it. It was made into a movie um, with Zach Kalfinakis and and Keira Gilchrist. Um, you know, but it's a, you know a sort of Be More Chill minus the sci fi element. It sort of deals with the same issues of depression and anxiety and, and, and fitting in.
1: In know, a high school
3: uh, Yeah, you know, it's a, world. That, it was in, in, influenced by um, his time after Be More Chill came out as a debut author. You know, he sort of dealing with the pressure of that, and he actually checked himself into a psychiatric hospital for a few days to sort of, you know, figure out how to how do deal with, like, you know, all the feelings that I'm feeling. And, and um, so, it, you know, it's about it's about that experience. Okay. But I'd, um, I'd read that book, I'd worked at bookstores all my life, and... and I usually would gravitate towards the YA section. I love young adult literature. This is where I discovered Percy Jackson and Lemony Snicket and, and Ned's work all around the same time. So it was... Amazing. It was destiny. It really was. I know. Like, I'm like that, uh, you know, that like... You know, post-college job of, like, working at a Borders bookstore, which now does not exist. Was this in Michigan? Uh, This is in Chicago. I moved to, um, right after I graduated college, I I moved to Chicago to do theater in Chicago. And so I was, like, interning all around and working at a Borders bookstore.
1: Were you a child actor, or were you always on the writing side of things? Um,
3: I was not. I would not say I was a child actor, but I would say I was a child who loved acting. And now I can't imagine that, because now I can't imagine being on stage. Um, It's definitely, but, you know, you, you first discover theater, you know, through you know, wanting to perform. and, and you So know.
1: you did musicals growing up?
3: I did. I My um, parents would always take us to see musical theater in in Detroit when, like, the big touring shows would come, you know, Cats and Annie and Jesus Christ Superstar. So I would see all those shows, you know, and then um, my sister and I would do, there's a little theater, a children's theater in our hometown called the Marquis Theater where we would do, like, a summer camp there. That was my first experience getting to, like, be on stage and especially be backstage because, you know, when you're, you, you know that the stage exists, but to like find out like what's behind the stage is really cool. And right. there's like, there's like dressing rooms and ghosts and prop <laughs> yeah. tables. You know, exactly. So, you know, so, you know, I, I would, you know, do theater camps and I would see musicals. Um, and then when I got to high school, I did like the, you know, audition for the musicals and did, you know, and so I definitely was, you know, embracing a sort of identity as a performer. Um, and when I went to college, um, I went to a small school called Kalamazoo College and I was there. I had a partial theater scholarship, which is great because even though I wasn't planning on being a theater major because I was like, well, you can't do theater professionally. Right. That's um, not a Yeah, profession. yeah. But, you know, it it meant that I kind of get to keep a foot in that world. And, and I was an English major and it, really by the end of college, I'd sort of realized that, oh, I love theater and I love writing. And playwriting is like the natural confluence of those, of those things. It seems so obvious in retrospect. It took me my entire college career to figure out, like, I love writing I love theater. What is there? What occupation could possibly marry those two things?
1: So you did. and then at some point, and you worked at
3: borders, yeah,
1: but at some point you made it to Tisch, to the new to NYU.
3: I did yeah. so I spent a couple of years doing um, Chicago theater after I graduated undergrad. Um, you know, Chicago is such a great theater scene, and it feels like everyone in the Midwest sort of descends on Chicago to with their friends to start a theater company because you can because there's so much space and and there's an you know avid theater audience there. Um, but yeah, the whole time I was working at, at, a, at Borders Bookstore and in the young adult section, and, and I discovering all these books that I would just like you know go and I don't know if, well I can say this now because Borders is no longer open, but as an employee you could like check out books as if it was a library. Uh-huh. So um, so like the, the huge perk of working there is that. All these books that I maybe wouldn't have read otherwise, I like you know because I, you know I could like I would just like check out and like go home and read the Percy Jackson series and the Lemony Snicket series and read it. it's kind of a funny story and and discover these books that you know that year now years later I've m- fortunate enough to be in a position where I can. I'm, I'm now adapting those into a different medium.
1: That is unbelievable. Yeah. That's so cool.
3: But it was definitely those, you know, those years where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, and, and it, you know, I, I wanted to apply to grad school, but I was also terrified because if I didn't get in, would that mean that I like wasn't a good writer? And so, you know, even the act of applying took a kind of courage. But it was those years that if I hadn't had those years of being like, I don't know what I'm doing, well, one of the, you know what I was doing was discovering things that now I'm, I'm getting to do for a living.
1: Extraordinary. So you did get in. I did to this graduate program. I got to come to New York. You got to come to New York, and you mentioned that you had an agent who brought you and Joe together. Yeah. How did you? How did he find you, or so, how did you find uh, him?
3: I when I graduated um, NYU, I went to the dramatic writing program, uh, grad program there, um, and I did uh, theater and television. And I, you know, just threw a, I a, I had done a playwriting conference where I'd met a, a I met a friend there who, when I was like, I went to a writer's group with her after graduate, and I was like, I don't have a job. I'm trying to figure out what to do. She's like, well, I'm leaving my job uh, to go to school, and so you should, you, know, you should meet my boss, and maybe you can take my place. And uh, that boss was Warren Light, uh, and, uh, you know, who, uh, a creative player and TV writer, um, who then hired me as his personal assistant. A week later, his TV pilot um, got picked up by FX, So suddenly I was working in television for a playwright who, like, you know, was able to sort of be a mentor in both those ways. Um, But uh, my, uh, Scott Chayloff, was currently an agent's assistant for Warren's agent. So, you know, as you do when you're assistant, you talk to assistants all day. And and so, you know, I would talk to Scott, and at some point he was like, I saw your name in a writer's group. Are you a writer? You should send me a play. So I sent him a play, and, and, like, then he sort of, I think even before he was an agent, he was, you know, sending my work out, under, championing, yeah. championing you. So I was actually, yeah. I was actually his first client. Um, wow, that's yeah, cool. good job, Scott. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a good job, Scott. We'll so. have to get Scott in here I at know, some yeah. point. Yeah. Well, yeah. And He's he got great a great Be a chill story because he then he you know knew Be More Chill and, and gave it to Joe and I. And I said, oh, I love that author, and, and I love Joey Connors. And so when he arranged us to meet together and said, hey, maybe. Would you guys, you know, see a potential there? We're like, yes, absolutely. This feels like a musical, and this feels like the person to write it with.
1: I'm so glad you just said that, because in the story, that is the seed that planted all of this. Yeah. That um, matchmaking. Yeah. Brilliant matchmaking, because he was so right.
3: It's, you know, I mean, definitely, you know, I think the experience of having a show close to opening on Broadway makes you reflect about the different paths that intersected to get you to where you're at. Oh, no, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Sorry.
1: How many minutes have we been talking? Yeah. Is it a record?
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, all these seeds, you know, if I hadn't been in that period where I discovered these books, if I hadn't, you know, been in, at Ars Nova and discovered Joe, you know, all these things that sort of came together so that when, you know, when Scott said, here's Joe Iconis, here's Be More Chill, Ben Vizzini, here's a Cornelia Street Cafe, you know, it was all the, like, the, the things that had to happen for that meeting to go the right. way it did, for it to happen the way it did.
1: Right. And you spoke... All of those languages, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I know that language, yeah. of and good food yeah, exactly. in the West Village. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're sitting there. You've both read the book. Can you recall, like, literally, what was the first, once you were like, okay, I could really see enjoying working with you, me too, um, Paid the who paid the check?
3: Oh, that's a great question. I bet Joey Coniston, he's really nice. He's <laughs> a
1: you didn't go have these. Uh, yeah. You think you okay? No Dutch going here. Um, do you remember the very first thing you wrote for this show that is now called Be More Chill? Yeah,
3: I mean, you know, b- before we ever wrote any actual songs or script, you know, Joe and I did a lot of like story breaking meetings, and they were all they all happened in New York coffee shops. So the um, the Birch Coffee that was in that oh, that hotel by a uh, Madison by um Madison Square Park. But it's gone now. But it was like a Birch Coffee that had like a little like upstairs library area. Everything's gone. Everything's gone. But be more more Pimorchil state The legacy <laughs> lives on of all these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it had like a little upstairs so you could like hang out there for forever because like the baristas weren't, didn't know that you'd been there for five hours. Right. Oh, um, brilliant. Yeah, so we would, and I we you know, we started off by... So Joe and Joe work in coffee shops. Yeah, exactly. We were both big coffee shop workers. I mean, that's the thing I think in New York because you're not like, your apartment's probably small, so you're... You go to you know coffee shops, Birch and I love coffee. I love the like just being in a place where it feels like there's a lot of creative energy and and just sort of excitement.
1: It's so interesting that you say that because Joe Iconis feels the same way. And for me, as a non writer, I always imagine that you need complete silence and to be in sort of a booth like we're sitting in right now, <laughs> where you're kind of cut off from the rest of the no, world. No, complete but
3: silence is like a blank page is terrifying, right? You know?
1: Right, so that you can kind of do it in a busy environment is kind of fascinating It sort of, to tri- me. It
3: sort of tricks your brain because there's already so much like exemptment and stimulation sort of like tricks your brain. And often if you don't have Wi-Fi in a coffee shop, then you can... You actually have to yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. There's so no forced Pinterest forced to, browsing.
1: Yeah. All right. So you start breaking story. Were you told from the beginning that you could divert from the source material if you want? Because there are things... In your show, the ending in particular, that yeah. are different from the source material. Yeah, you know,
3: early on we'd had a conversation with Ned um, on the phone, and, and you know, he, he told us about, you know, the book was, even though it's, you know, in some level of sci-fi novel, it's so rooted in his own experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it was his first novel he wrote when he was so young, there's so How much... How old was he? He was in his early 20s. Yeah, I want to say maybe 23, possibly younger. Um,
1: I got to start... Yeah, with my life. yeah. I mean, he was
3: you know he, he wrote a column for like one of the New York newspapers about like you know when he was in high school you know writing about like you know and, and it was collected into a book called T-Nanks uh, uh that's sort of about that was his like columns about being a high school student. He was always a gifted writer and and his writing the voice on the page you know, feels so unfiltered. It feels so raw and, and honest. And, you know, it's really funny, but it's, like, funny in a way that's, like, also super mortifying because it feels like people's thoughts that you normally you don't share because you keep them up in so your head. Raw. Yeah, and he would put that there. And I think that's why, you know, so many people have responded to his work. And, and I think, you know, that same, uh, f- like, funny yet honest quality is something that's so present in Joey Connors' songs mm-hmm. and his lyrics. You know, and I think that, like, I, I'm so proud that that legacy, you know, of that voice on the page... You know, has found a home in in Joe's lyrics as well, and has you know found people who have discovered his work through in this new way. Yeah. But um,
2: and your libretto and libretto, Not yeah, for yeah. So, it, so you said it. Ned seemed to uh, give you the sense that it was like from his experience. Did you did you get the sense that he kind of identified
3: as Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, Jeremy and Michael, I mean, in the, in the sense that you know all the characters were a piece of his own high school experience. You know, there were things that were literally from his own high school experience, and there were things that were so drawn. And, you know, he was around the same age as Joe and I as well. So, you know, like what it meant, what it felt like to be, a, a, you know, a teenage student, you know, towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, you know, was like a vocabulary we all spoke together. Um, you know, and, but in talking about how much of the book was autobiographical, you know, there's also the sense like he was like, well, like, you're making it into something, so you will also be putting parts of your own selves into that as well, and you know, and, and one of the things that I really loved about that conversation with him was he had had the experience of uh, working to turn Be More Chill into a movie, you know, at that point he was working in LA, he'd had a lot of, like, film and TV experience, and so actually he talked to us not just as the author of the books, but as someone who had, you know, already worked to try to adapt Be More Chill, you know, and, and so you know, and, and sharing the things that you know, some of the challenges that he'd had because so much of the book is in monologue. And, of course, what we were able to talk to him about is that in musical theater, inner monologue, it becomes song. And actually, musicals, in a, in a way that you can never do with film and TV outside of, like, heavy voiceover, and you can get into somebody's head and, and emotionally tap into what it feels like, you know, is inside somebody's head. and yes. You know, and the we told the book, is about what's going on in someone's head. Like, the squip is a voice in your head. So, you know, and he was saying how hard that was to translate to a visual medium, and yet musical theater sort of splits that difference because, you know, it's you know, it's a dramatic medium, you're seeing action play out before you. Um, and yet you're also very internal in a way that, you know, in, in a way that you can never be that internal in film and television. Um, so it was, it was actually great to, to talk to him, and not just as the author of the book, but as someone who was able to talk adapter to adapter. Um, and it was that, that when we went and then just tried, you know, sort of broke the story of, of the musical and said, you know, well, here's, you know, there were a few things like, obviously, like, you know, the book has multiple party sequences, you're adapting. You're like, well, I'm gonna take the Halloween dance and take the big house party and like make that one big set piece. You know, but also things like the ending. You know, the book is a very famous non-ending ending um where um, you know, the, the you know, sort of what happens is left up to the reader to decide for themselves. You know, and and that's like that felt very net in terms of like, you know, I'm I'm not I'm gonna not gonna do all the work for you. I'm gonna make you you sure. know, figure out and bring bring yourself to this ending. You know, but obviously, you know, when trying to adapt it, knowing that you, we would need a more, you know, a, a specific ending, um, you know, and I think Joe and I both gravitated towards as theater people the, um, you know, the theater stuff in the book. You know, that's all in the book. Jeremy signs up for the school play. He's doing in the book. It's a more straightforward production of Midsummer Night's Dream. I just seen I had just seen at the time uh, Where the World Mine, which is like a beautiful movie musical about teenagers doing Midsummer Night's Dream. So I, I think actually the decision to make it not a straightforward production came from having just seen a musical that did that so beautifully that I didn't want to, that I was like, well, how you know, I'd love to try to find a way to make it our own. And then as we were talking about, Joe and I both love science fiction and genre, you know, talking about a little shop of horrors and and finding ways to sort of push the sci-fi elements. You know, the book came out in 2004 when the idea of a computer in your head felt like much more sci-fi than it does now. It was pre-smartphone. You know, so I think one of the things we were excited about was, you know, in like 2012, you know, taking, you know, taking that, 2004 sci-fi and like pushing that to where we were headed. You know, and so then finding, be like, well, like, the Midsummer production could be, like, a science fiction version of Midsummer, Like, yeah, like, you know, like, the Tempest is, you know, the Forbidden Planet's, like, the sci-fi Tempest. So, like, what if, like, the drama teacher is, like, you know, trying to do the sci-fi thing? And that gives us a way to, like, introduce the idea of science fiction before the script is introduced. And introduce the idea that, like, there's going to be this, like, big, crazy sci-fi climax, you know, that can be, like, a play within a play. And and feels like we have permission to explore genre and, and get a little crazy there because we've, like, planted those seeds early on by having that be the play within a play. And so it was a lot of those kind of story decisions that came out of, you know, both like the permission Ned gave us and then thinking about how to use the medium in a in a fun, specific way.
1: Had you ever written a musical before or for a musical before?
3: In uh, in high school, okay. I definitely tried writing musicals that were terrible. Um, so
1: this was before Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. It was, yeah. So you had not started writing that yet. I had not started yet. writing that yet, okay. yeah. Okay. So... How does it work? You have two people, like two heads, one body, right? One of you is responsible for all the music and lyrics, and one of you is responsible for all the dialogue. Are there, like, very finely drawn lines, or did you guys sort of – I mean, there are famous – you know, there's Sondheim and – like, there's so many famous collaborators and, and um, hell Prince or just different people who have different jobs within the making of something. So how did you guys – designate, like, I take this, you take that.
3: Well, I think, you know, even though, you know, I'm writing text and he's writing music and lyric, you know, that there's, but we're both writing story. Right. So, you know, it never felt like we were, we were divvying things up. It always felt like, well, we're both telling the same story. And, you know, and from early on, it was so clear when I, one of the reasons I love working with Joe is because I felt like we just had the same story in our heads. You know, the story we wanted to tell was the exact same story. So, you know, I, there would be scenes I would write out, write out as if they were a play. You know, and then those, and then we would sort of like be like, "Well, where is the song in the scene?" You know, and then that, you know, part of that scene would then become song. You know, there'd be songs he would write that would then, you know, become. It'll be like, "Oh, well, how do we? You know, what, where does this go in the show?" You know, where does this? Is
1: there dialogue that you wrote that are that that's part of songs and 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 lyrics that he wrote that ended up being dialogue? Yeah,
3: absolutely. You know, I'm uh, in one of our workshops. There was no pants song in Act Two. You know, we knew that there was a song we wanted a song for the dad in Act Two, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was you know for a long time it was, it was going to be a more straightforward dad sad soliloquy song, um, and uh, and then the, the sort of brainwave in, in the rehearsal came well you know we need to figure out how is Michael what gets Michael from that bathroom to saving the day of the school play and, right. and it sort of hadn't had that moment happen, and it was like well like what if the dad what he does is like he realizes that he has to you know be there for a son and recruit his son's best friend so two people that. Jeremy is like pushed aside. Now, have to team up to say, like, if you love somebody, you like. And it was like trying to say, and we had the joke because it's from the book the dad, Jeremy, like, is mortified that his dad doesn't wear pants around the house. So, you know, that had been like a thing where we were like, it's a fun joke. But then I was like, you know, like, if when you love somebody, you put your pants on for them. And like, Joe, like, went away and like 12 hours later, he'd written that song. Oh you know? Yeah. And it was so, you know, I mean. So, like that. So, like, Perfect that. Example. yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: the your cool... thought becomes like this. Forever more famous song.
3: Yeah, this yeah. make this make you're like careful you're saying conversation because you never know what's going to exactly, become a lyric. Exactly. Yeah, or or you know like the end of the show. You know we'd had we'd written we didn't have an ending for our first workshop and, and we knew generally what would happen in it but we just sort of wrote instead of a final song like a paragraph of what was going to happen and we wrote you know like Jeremy can still do the squip, but he's learned that of the voices in his head the the loudest one is his literally that that became the song uh, you, know, you know so it was you know but it was it, you know the two of us both wanting to tell this story together and and figuring out so you know it, it's like what you know how do you divide it up it's, it just sort of happens It's just you're, you're both telling a story together and some you know, I don't know, I don't play sports, but I'd imagine there's a sports metaphor about like throwing things back and forth. Feels <laughs> like a,
1: Is that, Sam, is that a sports metaphor? Why are you asking me? Like, <laughs> I know sports? <laughs> no, it was a joke.
3: <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, you throw the soccer ball back and forth. That's exactly. how soccer works. Totally. Right? Yeah. That totally seems right. How it Three
2: non sports people are like, that
3: <laughs> yeah. seems right. That seems... I want to play that sport. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. cricket. Yeah. It's definitely like cricket. It's, it's more, if it's a sport, I guess it's like the sport from Calvin Hobbs. so they're like making up the rules as so they go along. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like how the, Yeah. So
2: I have a question, which is this time when you first meet Joe at Cornelia Street Cafe and let's say all the way up to the Signature Theater this summer, is there a moment or two in there that really stands out to you? If I'm like, what what is like this moment where it was just so magical or something, something that, that really stands out to you in that time? Yeah. Um, you in know, that very long period of time. I
3: mean, Beamer Show was such a huge thing for me because it was my first like real production. Of You know, I'd, I'd written plays and, had, and and done plays like Off, Off, Off Broadway, you know. Um, but, you know, we were commissioned by Two River Theater, this amazing theater in Red Bank. We were writing knowing that, you know, unless we really <laughs> messed it up, we were going to get a production there. So, you know, the, um, the comfort of knowing that your piece had a home, which is a playwright, you don't often have that feeling. Um, so when we did that first production, the, our, we rehearsed the first week in New York, and then we moved out to Red Bank. And that first night in Red Bank when, like, all the cast was all there and we were all staying in, like, the artist housing there and we were, like, on the bank of the – red ba- the red bank of the river – uh aptly named, yeah, aptly named, yeah, and all, you know, all like you know, sharing a passing a bottle back and forth that later gave us all um, strep throat. So really, yeah. wow. but you know, it was this magical moment of like, who do you all think there. had the
1: strep I, who, and gave it to who all was, of
3: you? Who was patient zero? Yeah, mm. that's a great question.
1: Were you drinking Mountain Dew? <laughs> it
3: was yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: it was the red. It was the red
3: Mountain Dew. Yeah, um, but you know, is that we were all there and we were you know all away from our families and and you know and in homes and we were in Red Bank, New Jersey about to embark on making this show together. We were, you know, some of us had pe- were people who had worked together before. Some were, you know, people who were meeting for the first time. But that sense of, like, we all really believe in the show and we're we'll making it together. And here, we're out here just to make this piece together. I think that was, like, one of the moments I always look back on. That Even before any audience had seemed to be more chill, the feeling that we all felt we were making something special. And even though we later all got strep throat from that night, yeah, <laughs> um, worth it. Yeah, yeah, so worth it. So so, worth, so it. worth it. Yeah. Was
1: this the first show that you sat in
3: auditions for? Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, actually, by the time, I, you know, because musicals take so long, we, um, from writing Be More Chills to that first production, I had done the initial production of Lightning Thief. Okay. So, um, uh, so I'd, at I'd, at, the at the
1: Lortel theater, yeah, the, okay. the
3: hour long theater works um, touring version of it, which is yes. Uh, So, which was, like, the fastest I've ever written something, like, from, you know, from coming together to write that piece to seeing it done and, like, you know, all around the country.
1: Not for nothing, and and this this is not called How to Be Percy Jackson in the Lightning (laughs) Thief, but I did as stated earlier, I have children who are obsessed with everything Um, you do, and so we went to see, by the way, hottest ticket in town was not (laughs) easy to get a ticket for, and also, much like seeing the Cher show the other night, where everyone around you was singing, like they're at Madison Square Garden, (laughs) to sit at the show that had only been open, like, a second, for everyone in the audience to be singing along, like, that show also had, like, this insane fandom. Obviously, the book and the movies had, similarly, like, the Ned Vizzini aspect of Be More Chill. It was crazy.
3: Oh, that's one of the coolest things about the show. Is yes. really in their, like, orange camp half-bud shirts. And... It was
1: incredible. And not for nothing, there was George Salazar yeah, yeah. in the show. <laughs> and I was like, that kid's good. Yeah. Keep an eye on that yeah. Salazar. <laughs> well, you know,
3: so we did him. So that was our, our full-length production of it. But, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, at that point, we I'd done Be More Chill, and then we, had, you know, George, I had my. So first that's experience. how you
1: knew George from the Be More Chillin' to River. Exactly. Okay. Yeah,
3: yeah, because we'd done a, you know, we'd done the hour-long version of Lightning Thief, you know, which is also where we worked with Stephen Brackett for the first real time, you know. Um, so um, you know, I, you know, around the same time I met Joe that through Blood Song and through Scott Love, I knew Stephen Brackett from Ars Nova, so Ars Nova was sort of like the, the glue for the three of us. Okay. But um, you know, after you know, between first writing Be More Chill and that first production in um, Two River, you know, I had the experience of doing the hour-long version of Lightning Thief where I met Stephen and so when it came time to bring on a director for the Two River production, you know... You were like, I just worked like, with this yeah, I was guy. Like, I know this guy, yeah. Yeah. And I actually went back and, and some... Stephen Brackett was, like, in the early emails Joe and I sent of, like, who would one day direct this piece? And he was, like, in the, wow. the – we we're like, were, like, what about Stephen Brackett would be amazing?
1: And did he say yes right away? He did. I
3: mean, you know, he, and he went out to Two River and met the folks out there. and, and um, But, you know, we were, we were so excited. I had, had just had the best experience working with him at Percy. And knowing that, you know, as a – both as someone who was able to find, like, a sort of magical theatricality and also just someone who I would like being in a room with and who, you know, pushed me to do my best work. You know, when Charles. So as a that...
1: dramaturg, he's tremendously yeah, talented. I mean, that's, also, that's
3: a thing you find a director who's also a great dramaturg, and, and Stephen is, is both those things. I
1: know. I don't want to skip ahead, but is everyone making their Broadway debut on the creative <laughs> no. team of this yeah, show? Like, no. there's I've never heard of this before. Yeah,
3: me, Joe, and, and Stephen are all. That yeah. you,
1: you understand, like, this <laughs> is, I mean, there's so many unorthodox, incredible things about how this show came to Broadway, but even that, like, the trifecta of creative uh, yeah. talent I, there.
3: Had, I never actually thought about that before. that I,
1: that I, I d- just, yeah. it bodes well for all of your talents, <laughs> is all I can say. So uh, Sam is, like, really uh, the chronological guru of our duo here and has such a great uh, keen eye for sort of looking at the timeline of how things came together. Yeah. So you've given us that moment, the strep throat moment. Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> Hashtag strep throat well, so forevermore known. The second moment actually involves Sam because um, then when we did, uh, uh, so, you know, then, you know, if we did Ben more chill in, in Red Bank, we all sort of mourned the show and thought it was gone forever. Um, You know, then I continued to work on Lightning Thief and then turned that hour-long show into a two-hour show that we did at the Lortel with with George and and Steven. And um, we were nominated for some Drama Desk Awards, and it was at the Drama Desk um, after the awards on our way to the after party where Sam and I shared an elevator with George. And this is my first time I met you, Sam.
2: Well, it's because I was like, oh, my God, this guy wrote Be More Chill. <laughs> I was freaking, I was so starshock.
3: So you knew who he was. Oh, my God, I knew it. And exactly you're in an elevator trying to be all chill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and it was the first time I'd seen George since, you know, we'd started to suddenly get, start getting messages from people who were discovering the show. And, and, re- and, you know, it was a time when we first started to take notice of this, like, crazy, beautiful phenomenon of people... Organically discover and be more chill. So
1: during the run of Jackson Percy yeah, Jackson and the started Lightning Thief, right. happen. Are you on social media?
3: I am on Instagram, and I'm a very terrible Instagrammer. Okay, like I, I don't like go for you for Instagram.
1: <laughs> but are you noticing also in your world that things are yeah, buzzing?
3: I started to get you know like messages on Instagram from people asking questions about the show and about the characters, and, and that you know I assumed it was like. The same five people who like went to, you know, s- you know, had seen the show in New Jersey, or you me. know, I assume it's that the me. messages were people who five yeah, messages yeah, from yeah, Sam. Okay. <laughs> Sam. Yeah, you know, I assume that they must have been all people who like knew each other and like all had discovered the show together. You know, then it became apparent that the messages were actually coming from everywhere, all over the oh, world. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and that these people were just like all happened to be finding the show at the same time. And 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 so you know, I remember at the in the elevator with Sam and George after the drama desks. Um, being like, George, have you noticed that people are, like, writing you about Be More Chill? And you're like, yeah, I, I thought you guys were doing something with it. And it was this insane was there to witness it of us, like, r- realizing that this was not an isolated phenomenon. But this is something that we were all suddenly becoming aware of. And, and that was the moment where we were first, like, maybe the show isn't as gone forever as we mm-hmm. thought. Mm-hmm.
1: But you move on. Yeah. To great things. Um, so Be More Chill happens in Two River. Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief is taking New York by storm, but that's a limited run. Yeah, yeah. That has to end. Then you are hired to write uh, unfortunate events.
3: Yeah, yeah. It actually, you know, and and you know, around the around the time of the tour production, I'd actually had been moved out to L.A. because you know I'd been in New York for seven years, and and I was you know I had gone from you know doing other jobs to support my writing to writing full time. Um, but then I found that, like, you know, you get your first writing job, and you're like, "Great, I'll never have to do another mm-hmm. non-writing job again." And then you find out that, like, oh, well, and then
1: you're like Borders Bookstore. Yeah, exactly. I, know I didn't return any yeah. of those.
3: Books. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they went bankrupt. <laughs> They're gone now. I, I was you like, do, I literally, oh there's a moment where I was like, I literally could not go back to Borders if I wanted to because it does not exist anymore. <laughs> because
1: I took all those. Books <laughs> because I took all those and books. I, I did forgot to return them. Bring them back. Yeah.
3: Um, you know, but you know, you get your first writing job, and I got a job working as um, as an in-house writer at an animation studio. You know, that was for. Also in LA? um, No, that was actually Blue Sky Studios, which is. um,
1: My neighbor. My neighbor. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, until um, recently.
3: It was my first paid writing job, and I was like, great, I'm now a writer. And then what you learn as a writer is that it is an entirely unstable career, and one job ends, another job isn't always lined up. So I, you know, after like two years of not having another writing job in New York, you know my husband, that well, was then boyfriend and now husband. We decided to move out to LA together. So he had just finished grad school at NYU as well. So it was like felt like the time for us to both, you know, move on. And I, so many of my playwriting friends were already out there and finding work. So you know, so you know, I'd actually sort of was leaving theater behind. Wow. You know, but fortunately, then because Be More Chill, you know, happened, and we t- lassoed you yeah, back, and, and we lassoed you back to New York. You know, so I've been really lucky that I have been able to actually like do both of those things and, and and going to LA didn't mean I had to abandon doing theater. But and did it,
1: a series of unfortunate events write... Was the writer's room in L.A.? Um,
3: the writer's room... So was Actually, the writer's room was in San Francisco. Um, okay. So Daniel Handler, who is Lemony Snicket, he actually uh, ran the writer's room out of his dining room in San Francisco. Wait, that's
1: who he really is? The yeah, real yeah, yeah, the real Lemony Snicket. It's Are we allowed open. to
3: yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, open secret, open secret. <laughs> yeah, so the writer's room was actually in San Francisco in My mind is room. blown. It was amazing. And it was actually, an all, uh, aside from Daniel, who's a novelist, it was an all-playwright room, which was really incredible. So, you know... Um, uh, Joshua Conkle, who it was, a, is an amazing playwright who I had known from New York theater. Um, we brought him on board. Um, Secret Gilmer, who's a, a playwright who's working in L.A., we brought her on board. So it was actually a really theater-friendly room. And the show itself, you know, Neil Patrick Harris and and you know Roger Bart, you had all these theater performers. So sure. even though it was doing TV, it was like very theater adjacent in terms of both the you know like the people behind the scenes and in front of the camera um and i got that job right after be more like it was right after be more chill closed in new jersey and it lasted 3 seasons up until the new york production so it was like really weird like be more chill bookend that whole 3 wow. year journey of that show um but i had no idea when i started that job i would never have guessed that i would then be going back to do be more chill when the show ended it would never have crossed my mind
2: wild um, so the signature Off Broadway production happens at the Signature, yeah, summer twenty
3: eighteen.
1: Are you able to come back a fair amount to kind of be a part of the rehearsal process? Yes, it was great or, because or or I, casting I've, I've, or I've, I've, any of that.
3: Yeah, because I finished in in uh, in San Francisco, Vancouver, and LA, so I was able to then be here for the whole signature process, which is incredible. And uh, yeah, and and you know, it was it felt like a we all felt like we were taking a risk because we you knew that people on the internet love the show but you know no one knows if that translates to people actually showing up in person because you know watching something on the internet or listening to something on the internet uh, is such a different engagement level than actually going to a the theater going to the theater requires well, first of all being in new york and, and and you know paying money and and showing up you know giving up a chunk of time to this thing that you know so would streams online translate to Ticket sales. To streams and, of people. Yeah, it's, yeah, streams of crowds. It did. It did, it did. It was incredible. And, and, you know, we were all scared, you know. We're still scared. It's just making theaters scary. Mm-hmm. Not like, you know.
1: When you say that, like, what do you mean, scared?
3: Um, you know, you're, you're, especially in a piece like Be More Chill that feels like we're putting so much of ourselves into it, um, it's very vulnerable. It's, you know, you're making art and making art that you love is vulnerable because if people don't like it, well, they didn't like something you love that you put yourself into. Um, You know, if you write something you don't care about or doesn't feel connected to you, then if people don't like it, it's easy to be like, "Well, it was just, you know, for the money, or just for the job, or just for the experience." But if you write something you believe in passionately and and you're putting, you know, your own passion and energy and soul into, and and if people don't like it, then it feels like they're just like ripping your your skin right off. Yeah, Yeah. So, you know, and we knew that people loved the show, but we, you know, you know when you then remount something that people have fallen in love with and you're changing it because. You know, for us, we never thought that the two production would be the. You know, when we were making it, we never were like, "Oh, this, this is, is finished set forever." Right. You're learning as you're making theater, and and you know, we'd always talk about like, "Oh, what we do for two or, you know, there are things we knew we hadn't cracked, but at a certain point, like the wheel stops, and you got to put something on stage, you know, um, you got to freeze the show, you know. But yet, people had discovered the show in a frozen state all these years, and you know, we'd also at the same time because we thought we wouldn't be get to do the show again, we'd licensed it. Um, so, you know, there was a frozen version of the show that people were not just listening to, but people were performing and, and, you know, so doing the show again, we knew we would make changes to it, but would we change the things that people loved about it? If we changed it, would they still love it? Um, so
1: tell to us about those meetings and those conversations and how did you kind of go, okay, we have 2.0 now. Yeah, uh, Actually, very soon it's 3.0, yeah. but let's stay in 2.0 for a second. Was there something from 1.0, uh, that you were like, if I ever get another crack at this, I want to deepen this or flesh this out or add this. And did you get a chance to do that for the signature theater run?
3: Yeah. I mean, certainly the, you know, the second act is always in any musical. You're like, I spent so much time with on 1. one. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so the sec, the or 2.0 was a chance to work a lot on the sec, some of the second act stuff. And, you know, something that was really important to me was that, um, you know, in the, in the second act, it, it you know, things take a turn for the weird things get the sci fi gets a little more heightened, mm-hmm. but wanting it to like stay rooted in the feeling of being a, a teenager and, and and the idea in that, a real
1: high school, yeah. in a real world.
3: So, you know, even though it gets wild and crazy, like the idea of squipping the school comes out of Jeremy's recognition that what he had felt was unique to him the feelings of isolation and anxiety and, and feeling wrong, those things that he thought, thought were only in his head getting the squip opens him up to realizing that that is actually. A universal experience. That's what everyone feels all the time. And so, if the solution for him was to put this pill in his head, this computer chip in his head, you know, and that made things better for him, well, wouldn't that make things better for everybody? So, you know, the idea that this sci-fi plot of, like, World Takeover isn't coming from some manipulative villain saying, you know, Audrey Tubing, I'm I'm gonna eat the world, but came out of a recognizable feeling of uh, universal isolation and longing that um, Jeremy discovers exists in all of his peers' You know, so for me, you know, telling that, letting that second act tell a genre story, but tell it in a way that was rooted in saying something about uh, what's inside of us, you know, has been, and you know, it's something in, in three as well. We've has continued to be something we've focused on because I think the the dream version of Beamer Chill, the best possible version of Beamer Chill, marries the sci-fi and the human experience in that really beautiful way, and it doesn't feel like suddenly, uh, you know, a, a teen drama gets hijacked by a sci-fi show, but that those things, because when you're a teenager, everything feels heightened and, and your nerves feel raw. Like a sci-fi show. Like a sci-fi, so it feels yeah. like the, the growth of the sci-fi feels like it comes out of um, just the heightened emotional experience of being alive. Was there a moment in
2: the 2.0 version this summer, In you know, you saw obviously all the just rehearsals and previews and then certainly at the last performance and some in between, is there a moment that you really enjoyed in this two point overs and that you remember during every time you'd watch it be like, I love this scene or I love this moment.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, I will say that like one of the things that was cool was how, um, uh, just like we, we realized the show was speaking to people and, you know, and that, and that people connected to every single character on stage and that, you know, it wasn't just people. Obviously Michael in the bathroom is often the gateway, you know, but we wanted a show where I felt like every character could have their Michael in the bathroom. If you just like, like if the, you know, the sage lens to mix metaphors would like went to like revolved or followed you down the hallway, you'd see that Brooke was like, you know, locked in the other bathroom down the hall, having her own like, you know, that, you know, that every character is, it has their own journey, their own could be the hero of their own story, could be the hero of their own musical and is going through a similar experience. And, and the fans were responding to all those characters it wasn't just like fan art of Jeremy and Michael being drawn but fan art of Jake and Brooke and Jenna Everyone. and Rich and so to get to see um people responding to not just the main characters of the show but to like all the supporting cast you know and as as fully realized human beings as people who they saw themselves in you know so i mean i always loved the moment in in the hospital where rich has woken up for the first time without a squip and he's you know, and you see that he's, his personality is different. Now that he doesn't have this voice in his head, he is a lighter, happier person, and he also has a personal epiphany about himself when he realizes, in fact, he's bisexual. And, you know, and, and you know, for in our world, in our minds, you know, the squip and this sort of voice representing conformity had been suppressing true aspects of who Richard Goransky is. And, you know, in this ending of the show, when he finally is free, he has this, like, moment of jubilation as he re- realizes this, like, truth about himself. And, And that was always one of my favorite moments in uh, the True River production. But, you know, now in in 2.0, it was the one where they get cheers every night and and had so many people that saw themselves in that journey. And for someone to come out, you know, for me as a a gay writer, to write a scene where a character comes out in a way that isn't tortured or heavy or weighty, but is jubilant and and celebratory, you know, felt like something I hadn't seen before and, and felt like something that I enjoyed being in the audience, watching people discover that every night.
1: Now I'm going to cry. Oh, <laughs> yes! Me.
3: Yeah, it It's going around. You're next, Your next Sam. You're next Sam.
2: So, Broadway rehearsals start. What was the process leading up to Broadway rehearsal start because 2.0 to 3.0 there's Big stuff up. happening. Three, three, yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, between 1.0 and 2.0, there was such a gap and even though you know, even though we'd think about the show there was never a sense of, like, oh, man, like let's dive back into it because we felt like we were never going to get that chance to dive back into it. Um, you know, but we, because by the end of the close of the Broadway run, we knew we were going to Broadway, or off-Broadway run, we knew we were going to Broadway. So there was a chance to keep the momentum going. And
1: How did you find
3: out? Um, I found out. So I was uh, on a um, writer's retreat working on another project in a house full of performers and, and writers.
1: Where was um, that?
3: I was in, uh, in uh, um, the Vineyard Arts Project at Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we jerry our producer called the company meeting um and oh no this oh he called first he called me and uh we had like a call with joe and a three-way call. yeah yeah, yeah and uh and he told us and so i was on i was on facetime um and then I, I was—he said we're going to Broadway—and I was like, I had my door closed, but there was like so many theater people outside the door, and I was like, I can't make any noise because, this, of course, it was supposed to be a secret. So I was like, right. I can't tell anyone. I have to like, leave the room and like walk past all these actors and writers and like pretend that I don't know this news. And I like muted it and put my headphones on, and I saw so like, but then I had to like not react. Um, That's torture. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> torture. Yeah.
1: Did anyone do a screenshot of that FaceTime conversation? They. I, I think, someone, I think someone did. I think I've seen Joe or seen Jerry like, have Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like your what, it, what it looked
3: like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we we're all, you know, we'd all gone, you know, so I think Bracket was in another city doing a show, and, you know, we're all. Sort was of,
1: Bracket like, on that call too? Was it yes, a four way call? Was, it was
3: a four way call. Yeah, yeah. I think. I think Fancy
1: technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to do that. So I can merge two, but once it's yeah, no, three of <laughs> yeah, us, forget yeah, it. It's too complicated. Yeah. Um So you're on the Vineyard. Yeah. I know that theater. I know exactly where you were. Vineyard Haven. Yeah. You take the ferry back to. New York City. So you're not present for the announcement in the rehearsal room. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I was say. so, so I should when they say. did
3: that I, I was still in the vineyard and I was um like on like the uh, like a, there was like a late house cuz we had like walk the whole cast walked and it's like I just step away to take a phone call and then I like then did FaceTime and saw everyone, you know, the excitement. So you saw that. Yeah, so I got to see the Oh my you know, god. Ex, you know,
2: explosion of joy. That's amazing. Um all right, three is about to start. It tell is, us yeah. how this process has been. We were, uh, as cre- of recording, we're a couple uh, less than two weeks away from first preview, yeah, and two days in a tech. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yes, and when we all get to hear this out in the world, people have already seen. Oh my evaluation. gosh! Wow. So <laughs> tell us a little bit. So, so it won't be a spoiler when when this airs. It will live and. And as you know, your fans are very quick to tweet and share everything. <laughs> cool. yeah, right? yeah, the
3: first preview for 2.0, that first preview, um, I definitely was like keeping an eye on social And I'm not a social media person, but I was keeping an eye on it because the people that showed up for the first day were the people who had been dreaming of seeing the show for so long right. but also had known that frozen version of it. So that How was would they respond was yeah. the question. They loved it. They loved it. They did. They were so embracing the changes. And I think that actually the, the changes we, felt we we had already wanted to make we're already in line with what our you know our fans were seeing in the show which is that they were responding to the the human emotions beneath the you know it's it's a sci-fi musical comedy you know those are things that are not you know that that sometimes can mean no substance you know i, I never you know i think that all those three of the things can have substance to them but like there can sometimes be a bias against things that are com- comedic or things that are musicals or things that have a genre in them that those things can't also speak to you know universal human truths but what people had responded to in this sh- inner show were those universal human truths, were those feelings of, you know, connection to the, you know, the, the challenges of finding your identity in, in a world that is both, like, more connected and less connected than it feels like it's ever been. So, um, so you know, we had always wanted 2.0 and now 3.0 to continue to find ways to tell that story more clearly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I am less nervous about the changes for 3.0, even though I think there's probably more book changes from 2.0 to 3.0. Can you tell us a little
1: bit about what some of the changes are or how you thought about them? Yeah,
3: I mean, really, I feel like the show feels a little more of an ensemble this time around. You know, whenever I'm rewriting, I often go back to those original, I'll, like, find my initial emails or, like, you know, notes from after workshops to be like, how was I talking about the play to people? And, you know, one of the things I always talked about when I talked to John Diaz at Two River and Annika Chapin, and you know, I always talked about it, you, you start off in Jeremy's perspective, but as the show goes on, Jeremy's perspective opens up as he discovers the inner lives of everyone in, in of all his peers. And so, you know, I talked about it as a show that would start with Jeremy but would open up to see what's going on inside everyone's head. And I was like, oh, well, you know, we sort of do that, but we're, you know, we're doing that very late in the show right now. How can we do that earlier? So, you know, we have a new musical number to replace... Um, the um, reprise of More Than Survive um, is now a new musical number just written. Called,
1: a whole new song. A
3: whole new song called mm-hmm. Sync Up that uses some of the DNA of the called old what? version. Called Sync Up. Sync Up. Um, where Jeremy now goes to school with Squip for the first time and experiences, you know, his Squip t- is able to walk down the hallway and say, here's what's going on with this person. Here's what's going on. You don't know this about this person, but here's what's really underneath the, 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 the uh, exterior they project. Wow. You know, And so that experience of having the Squip is... Jeremy relearning what it, what his schools system like social system is like
1: also we're relearning now what the squib's powers are yeah exactly we didn't know that the squib could see into the minds of people that he wasn't in yeah that's sort of so like, that's you know, really interesting yeah it's
3: it sort of you know and it's like sort of a like behavioral observing like see this person seems like they have it all together but like mm-hmm. you know they're you know or, not so much yeah see chloe she seems like she's you know tough and scary and yet that's because she's so scared of losing you know, status and power so you know the people who seem uh it's tough and scary are often the people who are the most scared on the inside and and so it's you know gaining insight into the way the world works that also teaches us about the people who we've met as archetypes and are now discovering that there's more to them than that so you know and you know that work you know it, it begins you know in the middle of act 1 it continues you know found new material for that towards the end of act 1 um, and then continuing doing that storytelling up in in all our... You know, act 2 is so um ensemble heavy, you know, we have the Halloween party sequence and and Pitiful Children, which has become more about really Jeremy sort of looking around and identifying the way that, you know, the, the chain of events he started at the Halloween party have rippled out. There's been this fire. But even beyond that, there's been people who have been hurt through his the chain reaction he started. People are, like, genuinely feeling isolated and, and wounded and, and sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally. And and so the idea of squipping school, Pitiful Children, the school play comes out of recognizing um, this... Uh, this ache that's all around him. And, and so I, I feel like that's, you know, always something that we talked about when we talked about this show. When Joe but and now I you could deepen but it. But now we're deepening it. And, and, and you know, we have just learned ways to do that better. And, and um, so I'm very excited for people to see it, especially for, you know, for, for new people who, you know, are going to see that version of Be More Chill that is about what's in all of our heads, you know, and for people who have fallen in love with these characters, you know, and getting now we'll get to know them in even deeper, more fully realized way.
1: Well, when when you guys and when you guys created a new song for Will Roland in yeah. two for Jeremy, um, I think it's pretty exciting to know. If we were doing the cast recording tomorrow, yeah. if your fro was show, show was frozen, there's already two more new songs yeah. from the original cast recording. Are there more?
3: There, you know, there's there's changed lyrics throughout, and, okay. and there's new some new musical moments. Um, that uh, uh, are excited. It's some, you know, we, we're looking at like, well, like right now, you know, Christine the second act, you know, isn't you know she doesn't have as much musical material as she does in the first act, and and yet like her point of view in the second act is you know what she does is she articulates what Jeremy is fumbling towards, which is that everybody around us is hurting. And wouldn't it be great if there's a way to fix that? Uh-huh. And that's Jeremy gets a little label And he's like, oh, right, I can, I can do this. And I can just give everyone a pill that's gonna make everything better. It's gonna be great. And get the girl. And get the girl, yeah. you know? And, and so, you know, we found a way to musicalize that um, point of view for Christine. Um, that I think helps, you know, because Christine is often the truth teller in our show. You know, she's someone who is often the voice of truth and the, and, and the voice of honesty. And so for her to say, you know, everyone's hurting, and wouldn't it be great if there's a way to make everyone not hurt? You know, that, that gives, I think that gives a legitimacy that if it was just the squip who we know manipulates people, if it was just the squip saying, everyone hurts, you should uh, you squip everyone. You know, that, that, that point of view is now legitimized by hearing Christine, our, our most true telling character, articulated in song because in a musical, things, should, you know, things that are important should be articulated through music.
1: I think in real life, too. I think in real life, too, absolutely. I'd like to change the rules of how <laughs> we all it. communicate in oh the world. God. So... One thing Sam and I have both been just overwhelmed by and, and in thinking about it for all of you involved in the show is the amount of young people in particular who have had their lives changed. If you could think of an exchange that has stayed with you, like the fortune cookie uh, fortune that you put in your wallet, because, yeah. like, it's such a good one that you keep forever?
3: Well, the one that always, I think, you know, my, um, you know, I, I get, I do get really incredible messages from fans, and, and sometimes they're just things like, what would this color of Mountain Dew do do <laughs> if you drank it? But, you know, often they are, you know, this helps me get through the day, uh, you know, I was, you know, some people, this helps me get through my hospital stay, this helps me get through this life experience, and... But um, there's, a, you know, my mom actually got a message on Facebook, um, and I, I'm not a very, I, I I have, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not a very Well, Facebook Facebooker. is still for moms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Facebook is for moms. That's so, where you find and us. She, and she got a message from the mom of a fan who reached out to her, and she said, I don't know if you're, uh, you're, I have a unique last name, so she said, I don't know if you're related to Joe Trace, one of the writers, to be more chill, but I just wanted to, if you are, I wanted to pass this message along to him about, you know, this show giving, my daughter, the light in her eyes, and, and, and just this beautiful, beautiful message that um, that my mom was able to share with me. And and so to have that moment not just shared from the fan, but to have my, that be something that my mom and I could share together and mm-hmm. that obviously as a, as a parent, if you see a kid, your kid is Hurting. doing the art. Yeah, you know, and then finding that thing. I think any parent knows what it means to see your child find that thing that gives them that light, that gives them that spark of, of joy and the, the difficulties of growing up. So to be able to share that with my mom was Definitely, one of the most special messages to get, and but you know, it's it's been that whole the whole experience of realizing that as an artist, the work you do reaches people and has uh, is having an effect on people. Is you know, you you write things in isolation and, and you make things with a community, but then it's when you put it out in the world, you don't always know if your words are having an effect, if the ripples are actually reaching you know people on the other on the other shore.
2: So. The crazy thing is, I'm listening to Joe just tell us that story, and that's the testimonial we have for this Let's episode. I'm pretty it. sure it's the same. Whoa. Joe, you'll,
1: you'll confirm or deny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm freaking out. That just blew my mind that like we asked, like, what's one of your favorite fan interactions? Okay. And you answered with the person who who sent us this.
4: So my name is Bibi, and when my daughter was 11, I suddenly had a kid that, despite growing up in a very happy home, was now somehow broken. She was unusually sad and feeling like she didn't really fit in anywhere, and there just wasn't a lot of happiness for her in general at the time. But one day she discovered Be More Chill, and instantly she became one of these kids that was on the internet every single day talking about how amazing this play was, despite the fact that she had never even seen it. Then one day she got an opportunity to ask Joe Trace a question online about his inspiration writing the play. And she lit up like a Christmas tree. And I turned to my husband and I said, that right there. Whatever this Be More Chill thing is, we need to feed that. So when the play came back, I was like, okay, we just need to go to New York and see this thing. And the moment I saw it, I instantly understood what all these kids had connected with. It was, without doubt, the message that the play tells, which is simply to love yourself just the way you are. But it's delivered by submerging you in this incredible music with hysterical writing and these fabulous characters that tell you the most important life lesson, presented in a way that you're gonna wanna see again and again. And although I may have started as a 51-year-old reluctant parent, I'm pretty sure at this point I may now be a bigger fan than her. <laughs> Aww, Isn't that wild? That's
2: beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah. She's like the, the mom of the year 2018 Aww. and 2019, I, I think. There are a
3: lot of really amazing Be More Chill moms out there.
2: It's true. Yeah. Um, we need t-shirts. Yeah. yeah, Be More Chill mom. <laughs> yeah, my, what does it say? my student of the year, my, my daughter is Be More Chill fan of the week. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. A bumper sticker.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Honors. (laughs) All right. Well, we got to get Joe Trace to uh, tech for Broadway rehearsal because he wrote a musical that is starting on Broadway in two weeks. Yeah. (laughs) It was our great honor to have you tell us how to be more chill, how be more chill happened. Your involvement in that is important and crucial and means a lot to us.
1: Joe Trace, I just uh, want to thank you for being one of the most extraordinarily beautiful people to walk on this planet with us. It is um, it is amazing what you are accomplishing and just can't wait to see all the things that come out of it. your head and your. Yeah, we're going to see it many times.
3: Mm hmm. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really, really incredible. Yeah, it's great. See you soon. Yeah. Yeah. See you on Broadway.
1: See you on Broadway. I get to say that now. Thank you for listening. Hey, you can find us on Instagram at how to be more chill. And one quick thing before we go, could you go to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you listen on and just take a moment to rate and review us? We would really appreciate it. And do not forget, this is Alana.
2: This is Sam.
1: Tell us how to be more chill.
3: Never hung with a
0: girl like you before. I don't know if you know it, but
4: I am sure that for me you are
0: an upgrade. Hey there, I'm Kimberly Schmidt. Are you in love with the podcast you're listening to? Kevin Jager here. Did you know it's part of the Practically Perfect Broadway Podcast Network? And I'm Brian Plofsky. The Broadway Podcast Network features over 30 podcasts to feed the theater passion in all of us. Feed Miss Seymour! Wait, over 30? I feel like I'm running out of time. It doesn't have to be agony because we have a very good place to start. Try out the Broad Wasted podcast with the three of us. And yes... It is what it sounds like. Join us every Tuesday for a hilarious happy hour with the best and brightest on Broadway. We drink, play games, share laughs, and did I mention drink with your favorite Broadway stars? From Jeremy Jordan, Patty Murin, Jessica Vosk, and Carolee Carmelo. To James Monroe Iglehart, Sierra Boggess, George Salazar, and Alice Ripley. We have too much fun with too many friends of the show to mention. And on BPN, there's a whole new world of theater podcasting at your fingertips. Alongside the Broad Wasted podcast, you can discuss other great established shows and exclusive podcasts that were made just for the BPN Network. So defy gravity and fly on over to broadwaypodcastnetwork.com or go direct to our page at bpn.fm backslash broadwaysted. And follow, follow, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us at broadwaysted and the network is Broadway Podcast Network. We just can't wait to be a part of your weekly theater podcast lineup. Thank, Thank you and cheers! Bum. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Make sure to visit us online at broadwaypodcastnetwork.com, on Instagram at Broadway Podcast Network, or on Twitter at b Network.